Hello, I'm Nick. And I'm Stacey. And you're listening to Disagree to Disagree. The podcast in which I try to chip away at Nick's aversion to poetry by sharing some of my favourite poems and exploring what makes them so charming. And I try to change Stacey's mind about some of my favourite films, which she might have been too quick to dismiss. While we might not always agree, we are hopelessly optimistic that by looking at things through a different lens, we just might be able to convince the other to see things a little differently. So as an English teacher, do you have a little confession for us? <sighs> Dramatic pause. I am... Um... I will confess to you, Stacey, that I, until recently, cannot confidently say that I knew who Emily... I've gone blank on a surname! (laughs) (laughs) Emily Dickinson, yes, one of the most famous poets. There are too many Emilys. uh, How many Emilys are I mean, there's Bronte, Pankhurst, (laughs) Blunt, (laughs) The Criminal... All great women. All great women. Well, let's just add Emily Dickinson to that list of great, great women. I definitely knew the name Emily Dickinson. I definitely knew it was something related to literature. Um, (laughs) But I couldn't confidently say that she was a poet. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to everyone. That's okay. That's okay. We are going to definitely advance your knowledge of Emily Dickinson today by reading a great poem of hers. And uh, and then you're going to tell us uh, what you think of it. So let's just dive right in. Let's do it. There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us, we can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it, any, tis the seal, despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens, shadows hold their breath. When it goes, dislike the distance on the look of death. Look, it is it is beautiful um, to listen to, and it has all the hallmarks of a poem with a capital P. Um, I guess for our listeners who are looking at this poem, they will be able to see that there are just random capital letters seemingly kind of tossed about all over the poem, quite a lot of seemingly random punctuation are these dashes? Uh, there's a technical term for these longer dashes, isn't there? I'm not quite M-dashes, sure. M dashes, which M-dashes. is very appropriate for good old M. Emily dashes, I think is what Emily we'll be calling dashes. them from now on. <laughs> um, yeah, I I will confess that like on maybe second or third reading, on first reading, I, it, it sounded nice and I couldn't really tell you much more. Second and third reading, I thought... There was a, I got a kind of a sense of some connection to this idea of a sad afternoon time, like this slant of light, winter afternoon, oppression. Um, I think thinking back to my own childhood, uh, you know, those like long afternoons, the the ticking of the clock, um, a feeling of melancholy, 
but I couldn't really give you much more than that. And I, I guess that's part of my um, my struggles with with uh, with this medium. Yeah, I think I mean, I think that's really interesting, especially what you bring to this poem of your own um, perceptions. I have a, a family member who moved to the northern hemisphere and really struggled with the early evenings and how light changed and suddenly got darker. And in fact, she would actually call the sort of hour between three and four in the depths of winter when it was getting really dark. She would actually call it um, sort of the most traumatic part of the day for her. And she actually found it incredibly anxiety-inducing because she knew the light was fading at three o'clock and that she was in for a long night and a long dark evening. And she actually found it incredibly difficult to get through. And I think that this poem is definitely hinting at that, hinting at that kind of time of day. So I think that it's interesting that you relate it to sort of longer, brighter afternoons. I know I have no right to feel that way because this was a a, a 10, 11-year-old child sitting in sunny Cape Town um, (laughs) with no reason to feel... melancholic of an I know, but I think I think it probably speaks more to your temperament than anything else. But I think that it uh light can do this. Light can play with our emotions and make mm. us feel certain things. So I think that she's definitely touching on on something important there. So for me this is a, an incredible poem because it is a poem which is meditating on the very nature of despair and how it comes in unexpected ways and how it's almost divinely sent, how it makes you question the very meaning of life and leaves you feeling empty by the end of it. We have a speaker who starts talking about a certain slant of light on winter afternoons that oppresses. And it's that phrase that to me is just so incredible because often we think of light as being positive and bringing joy. And often that's the association with light. And I think as soon as the speaker says that oppresses, there's almost this surprising shift when you're reading it and you're suddenly like, oh, okay, why is it you know, what's oppressive about it. And then you get this imagery of this religious imagery of the the weightiness of cathedral tunes. And I don't know if you've ever sat and listened to an organ in a giant cathedral, but it's not the most uplifting of sounds, even when they're playing a happy piece. It's not like a tinkering on the piano keys. It's waiting, weighty, right? It's that kind of solemn, weighty heaviness that although it's music, it's very, um, it is oppressive. There is definitely a kind of heaviness to it. And then we have this oxymoron of heaven hurt, this idea, heavenly hurt, this idea that it comes from heaven, but it's painful. There's kind of a pain in that, which I find um, really interesting. And she carries on with that idea that this this feeling, this sudden feeling which comes on um, and is very heavy and weighty, it comes from above, sent us of the air later in the poem. She talks about that. And then at this point in the second stanza, she says, we can find no scar. There's no physical effect that this light, that this despair, whatever it is that suddenly comes, there's no physical scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. And you suddenly realize that this is a despair, which is existential. This is where it hits at the heart of kind of where we make meaning in our lives. And um, this is not a, this is something which can't be seen, which is internal, which is going on internally, mentally, rather than something very, very physical. Hmm. And none may teach it. That is a great line. I think it might be even one of my favorite lines of the poem because the idea here is that you can't explain this feeling to anybody else. You have to experience it. And it's something which makes you realize that this this sort of musing on the idea of hopelessness or despair or existential crisis is not something you can teach somebody else. But there's also a double meaning in that line because it's also none may teach it, the despair. Like it's its own entity. And... um, 
And I find that really interesting. And the stanza kind of moves on to talk about the hopelessness of dealing with this because we have the seal despair as though it's some sort of imperial seal, some sort of order sent down from above. And that's carried on in the next line with an imperial affliction. The idea that an emperor has just sort of sent out an order or a decree and you have to just sit back and take it. There's nothing you can do. And I think that hopelessness and powerlessness... It was pretty usual in Emily Dickinson's time to think of heaven as an empire. And so I think that that definitely creeps up there. And then finally, in the last stanza, we have this imagery of the landscape and shadows and nature just holding their breath as though they are these kind of soldiers of the empire just waiting instruction and a kind of idea of waiting out this feeling that has come on um, in this, this winter afternoon. And then finally, it does go, but there's a emptiness that is left when this feeling departs just like the eyes of a corpse which is a very depressing <laughs> image but this oh, idea of sort of, of an well because it's the look of death right oh. it's the it's the distant look of death and so you've got this hollowness and an emptiness a sort of forever changed um bereft feeling left at the end so that's kind of the general gist of the poem this idea that it is this musing of what it feels like to have a moment of despair to have this kind of this moment of despair come on you to make you question everything um, and where it comes from and, and how it leaves you. And when the despair leaves you, that is when you feel even more empty? <laughs> this is not helpful. This, this is, <laughs> I think that it's an idea that if you've ever had something shake your very identity, if you've ever had any kind of time in your life where a feeling of melancholy or depression or despair or even a shaking of one's belief structure, there is definitely at the end an idea that even when the kind of very intense momentary feelings of it pass, one is left feeling different to before and, ho and sometimes, unfortunately, feeling a little empty and a little bit lost. I need to put a trigger warning before this episode. <laughs> this is probably material. very true very true but I mean I think if anyone knows Emily Dickinson's work I don't think they'd be expecting anything light and cheery oh no so did that uh, open up anything for you in this poem well, it absolutely did it obviously did uh mm -hmm. and I've there were multiple moments where I felt um like my own students sort of slack jawed as these images were sort of broken open and and I'm kind of like almost disappointed in myself that I didn't see some of these things. I mean, the, the heavenly hurt oxymoron is superb, and I, I didn't even see that. Maybe mm -hmm. I didn't want to see that. Um, <laughs> um, Interesting. What's your feeling on analysis of poetry where there's a question mark around how how far to to go and how much was initially kind of baked into the, the poem. So, for example, none may teach it, and you've spoken about this double meaning on it. You can't explain it uh, to someone mm -hmm. else, but then mm -hmm. this, the other side of that meaning, do, like, are you confident that that's, that that's definitely the voice of Dickinson, or is there space for us to find our own things? I mean, that probably is the voice of Dickinson, and that's a, a very established interpretation. But what, what's your feeling around that? Yeah, I think it's a great question with poetry in general. And I think that uh, I have no... People get very hung up, especially my students, whenever I've taught poetry before, they get very hung up on, is this what the poet meant? And I actually don't have a problem with saying, maybe not, but that's my interpretation. And I think that with any art, we bring to it our own, own viewing. And so if it speaks to me in this particular way, whether or not that was the intention, once the poet has put that on the page and sent it out there, that 
that's for me to pick up and, and, and interpret and enjoy. And I can tell you what I enjoy from the poem and I can tell you what I like in the poem and why I like it. I probably can't, as you say, um, set down a definitive sort of idea of what exactly Emily Dickinson meant when she wrote. And you don't feel a frustration in that? No, not at all, <laughs> because it's art and art lets us yeah, lets us bring whatever we want to bring to it. I don't think of a poem as being one-sided. I think that when we read poetry, it's two-sided. The poet's done their work and now I do mine and I bring to it whatever I, I want to bring to it. And actually on that point, you know, there's actually a reading of this poem, which could be about, um, you know, the, the, the beauty of the poem is you can read many layers in it. And one of the things that Emily Dickinson was known for being great at is taking the concrete and the physical and using it to explore mm. the metaphysical or the spiritual, right? And so that's why I think a lot of people would read into this, that this is not a poem just about how you feel when the light is diminished on, on an afternoon, right? Like that, that there is some other deeper metaphysical sort of or spiritual meaning to it. But you could also read it as that if you wanted to. I mean, you could just read it as... As, as this feeling of oppression in the winter, knowing that things are very dark. Equally, a lot of people read into this poem that the slant of light is about truthfulness and about truth. And, you know, light is often used biblically about meaning the truth. You know, I saw the light. I saw the truth. I had some sort of phys some spiritual revelation. Also, the idea, obviously, of Plato's cave of coming out into the light and the idea that when truth is revealed, we have these huge revelations. And so a lot of people sort of wonder what specific truth she might be talking about. Or is she talking about a general, you know, when we are confronted with a truth and it just shakes us to our very core, how how we deal with that. And it sort of shakes our own identity and stuff like that. Hmm. Okay, so there's... So would you say, knowing the work of Emily Dickinson, that there's definitely kind of the, the religious allusions and things in here, that's, that's, the, that's maybe what was in her mind? Or do you think that she was creating this with, with definitely that religious angle, cathedral tunes, heavenly hurt, all these references, but knowing very well that this could be about other things, it could be about truth, it could be about... Yeah. You know, yeah. So, you know, often poetry can stand alone and uh, we can enjoy a po poem just for the beauty of the poem and the language. And sometimes it's helpful to know a little bit about the poet and the context that they were writing in. And I think that could be useful in terms of this poem. So just briefly, Emily Dickinson was born in 1830. And so she lived in Puritan New England. So religion was a massive part of her daily life. And she grew up in a religious household where going to church was very important. And, you know, she was given a Bible, I think, at the age of 13 and her family read it together and they spent time um, discussing religion a lot. She, in her teens, this sort of religious revival was sweeping through New England at the time and so a lot of people were being called to sort of confess their religion and to, to, to sort of profess renewed belief in, in God and she refused to because she felt that that just wasn't for her and um, and in her 20s she actually stopped going to church entirely um, which was quite unusual but she always professed a belief in God and religion was very important to her. Um, but those shows of religion weren't necessarily what her relationship with God was about. And so throughout her poem, poetry, we actually have a lot of religious imagery because it was a big part of her life. Religious imagery, debates on whether there's life after death, debates about, you know, questions over, you know, the eternal and things like that. And so religion just plays a huge part in, in her poetry. But it is often a grappling for her with what the true meaning is with her belief in God and things like that. And so I I think that 
yeah, so I definitely think knowing that that was that was the case for her, I don't think that we can gloss over this religious imagery. I think it is integral to understanding what this this you know existential crisis was probably about. Okay, so the the nun may teach it is the it in this case then um, potentially religion and her feelings of the fact that you know she's been brought up in the church, she's been brought up being told and taught about faith and religion and she wants to maintain a sense of faith but there's this feeling that in her view it can't be taught it has to be felt or discovered or something like that that's actually a really interesting point that i had never thought about because i think from me i was sort of thinking that the nun may teach it is this feeling of despair that you can't or existential crisis but interestingly she one of the things that really sort of she enjoyed thinking about with religion was preaching and language and the sort of Mm. ability of language um, to translate kind of what was spiritual and metaphysical into the real and affect everyday lives and she really appreciated good preaching she really appreciated and she actually wrote to her brother when she was 14 about she kind of came home from church one day and and wrote a letter where she talked about the sort of zealousness of the preaching and and I think language was really and how you know that that is a mode of teaching was really interesting to her so I think that's an interesting point about about what it means to sort of yeah teach these thoughts and ideas because it's it's um internal difference whether meanings with a capital M mm. are mm-hmm. none may teach it and then sort of what's this any it's like it's like <laughs> an exclamation mark listen n- none may teach it none of you some of you may even think that you can but I'm here to tell you any of you. <laughs> What is that extra any for? Well, yeah, I think you've just unpacked it. Like, there's a really interesting none may teach it any. Like, there's this idea of anything, nothing. There's just no possibility. Um, I I think I'm not 100% sure, but there's definitely a conversational kind of thought process going on there. Um, And I actually think that your interpretation of it is quite good. It's almost a reinforcement of that. I don't know why, but it reminds me of that terrible, I shouldn't say terrible because people will come for me for saying this, but that Taylor Swift song at the moment. Do it. She says, what's the one about? It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. It's that high. I'd like to see that, that, the, the lyrics written down there and see her punctuation. <laughs> like, is she going with any yeah. of the, the M dashes? The yeah, M exactly. Dashes it's me. Hi. <laughs> I think we've got, I think she was absolutely inspired by Emily Dickinson. None may teach it any. <laughs> yeah, that's 100%, you know, Taylor Swift inspired by Emily Dickinson. You heard it here first. You did. Tell me, tell me things about the, about the, the, the technical stuff. I think I get that oppresses like the, wait for it, heft of cathedral <laughs> tunes in capital letters like TM at the end. Uh, and and the slant, I guess, are we now to sort of extract all the words with capital letters and, uh, you know, despair is one of them, landscape gets one, shadows gets one. Mm-hmm. What's happening here? I mean, you've got the traditional, you know, personification, you know, landscape and shadows suddenly become people as soon as you capitalize them, right? Like they become personified as though they are their own um their own beings so you definitely have have that idea you also have the idea that when you capitalize a letter you just place importance on it so um there's a certain slant of light i think the capitalization there definitely we're talking about a very specific thing and i think that's you know it's not just a general light it's not just a general feeling it's a very certain slant it's almost it's not just made... a general despair no this is a very particular one and i think so you definitely have that 
you know, I don't get too hung up with Emily Dickinson's, uh, you know, uh, punctuation and capitalization because I think hundreds of <laughs> theses and dissertations have been written on this very point. And I think there's just an ambiguity that I kind of love. I kind of love about it that we don't know entirely. We don't know if it was just, you know, a little bit random or, or, or meaningful. It's important to know with Emily Dickinson, she only had 10 poems uh, published during her lifetime and they were reluctantly published. She never wanted to be published. There was one, an 11th one, which she, she did uh, agree to have published, but only 10 were, were published in her lifetime and, yeah, didn't want Why it to happen. Why do you think she didn't want to be published? It's really interesting. There's a whole load of her poems where she talks about fame and she talks about not wanting it and how you know problematic it was. But I also think that for her, poetry was an exploration and it was an experiment. She, was, she cared what people thought of her poems. She'd send them to people she respected and have long dialogues through letters um, had to be through letters because at about the age of 25 she became a complete recluse she stayed in her own room wore only white and for the rest of her life just uh, just took herself away from all society but not not through her writing and her letters it was only after her death and, and and before she died she made her sister promise that she would burn all of her writing and but when she she died her sister found almost 1800 poems in her desk and Prolific. so yeah and uh and, you know, you do have to wonder then if these were, if she was not preparing these for publication, how much of the punctuation and capitalization, how much was this just her sort of jotting down her musings and she wrote as if she spoke, you know, and, and I, I think they're meaningful because I think that dashes were used deliberately instead of periods as though she was sort of breaking off in thought and and there's definitely you know I think the poem would be very different if you put a period everywhere that there's a dash you know and so I think that they are meaningful it just is a complicated one because we'll never fully know and interestingly when she when she did die her sister gave uh, gave over her poems because she felt they needed to be seen she gave them over to to Mabel I think it was Mabel Lumen Todd who uh, was a local academic and actually the mistress of her older brother and uh, to to edit them. And between her and a good friend of Emily Dickinson's, um, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, they put them together for publication and they felt that because she was so unorthodox in her style that they would not be well received. And so they polished a lot of them up and took away all of those things and made them sort of more conventional. It's so interesting to hear you say that she was unconventional or regarded as unconventional in her style because when I first read this, I was like, there it is. That is a poem. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, there it is in its stanzas with its like interesting a, a, mm-hmm. lines that, that get cut off halfway through and start again, next oh, one yeah. down, which must mean something profound. There, there it is with its punctuation and its arbitrary capitalization. This, this is a poem. And I think like many of my high school students would look at this and go poem but right massively That's unconventional poem. yeah but she was super unorthodox in her own time and i think in the 1800s you know uh, she definitely would have been seen as this is not a poem this doesn't have correct mm. stanza structure and mm. meter and punctuation and all of that and so and that's partly why yes yeah, all of her work had to be sort of polished up and given titles she never gave a single one of her poems titles and so there was that process this you know then there was a another process later where they kind of stripped away that and went back to the originals because they felt it was was unfair interesting idea about censorship and publication and editing for sure yeah when you when you first said that she had kind of refused to be published and had these complicated feelings about it I, I was like well it's because she didn't want them to be misinterpreted. I <laughs> didn't want them. Like, and I, 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 I mean, I know I, you're obviously right in this idea of a poet or a 
songwriter or an artist, you know, they create their art and then that's their work done. And now the work of, of the res- the receiver is to kind of make mm-hmm. of it what they will. And, and the artist must know that, but surely there are, I mean, like I've dabbled in a bit of songwriting and I've seen people like not get what I'm saying and feel immensely frustrated by that. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's more okay when people see something that wasn't there. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of fine because that's like, oh, you're expanding mm-hmm. out on something. But if, if something isn't got or is missed, I wonder if like there's a like a trigger in the in the creative's mind of like, no. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. I would rather keep them to myself and not yeah, allow sure. them to be I don't mm-hmm. know. I definitely think so, and I think maybe uh, in a in a further episode we'll have to do some of her poems on fame and what it means, and because she definitely had a lot of thoughts on that. Um, but it's a it's a really really good question, and I mean I'm no famous artist, so I can't certainly can't answer that. But I do wonder if there is um, a possessiveness of one's work, or once it's been mm-hmm. released into the world, there's kind of a letting go of it and allowing people to make their own meaning from it for sure. Hmm. Well, look. You've definitely changed my mind. On this Have one. I? Do you actually like this poem? When I read it, uh, and I think this is gets to the heart of some of my feelings around poetry, is that I, I generally like the sound of poetry because obviously, if if a poet has got a very small amount of space in which to like produce their their meaning and all of that kind of thing, and so it needs to be like all packed into this little small space and it generally sounds nice there's there's intentional thought around rhythm and syllables and the sound of things so I read this and I liked the sound of it but I definitely first reading I was like this is I've got no idea what's going on here (laughs) like zero and then it took second and third readings for me to just have even a personal connection to Mm -hmm. it this idea of a um uh, like a, a melancholic feeling around the afternoons, which I did connect with, but I, I missed all of the the existential you know, the, crisis, the despair, the existential mm-hmm. crisis, the religious a- angle, all mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, this is my problem: is that it took you, kind of coming along here and giving me some, like, just basically like unpacking, like a toolbox and taking the thing not apart, for me to go. I love this. This is, I connect with this. I understand this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, I would not have got there at all. Maybe that's the beauty of poetry, though, is it draws us into dialogue with others. And it's through discussing it that we kind of unpack it and learn about it in a di- on a deeper level. Well, if that is what it is about, I look forward to a few more. Yeah, for sure. Should we read it one last time now that we have a renewed understanding of it? Do it. There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses, like the heft of cathedral tunes, Heavenly hurt it gives us, we can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it, any, tis the seal, despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens, shadows hold their breath. When it goes, dislike the distance on the look of death. Right, my turn. Stacy, ever seen the film Interstellar? Are we talking Matthew McConaughey in space? We are indeed talking Matthew McConaughey in space. Yeah, I think I watched that a while ago and I have to say I don't think I liked it very much. Okay, that's settled then. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) 
if you out there enjoyed this episode and are interested in more, why not watch or re-watch Interstellar with Stacey this week and join us next time to hear if I can convince her of the genius of that film. <laughs>